Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Do you know that the, the, the God of the universe has made a home in you? Is that not remarkable? Uh, the Holy Spirit, God says, lives within us. And so uh, we want to take some time. We're going to start this new series, and we're going to look at the Holy Spirit. And so this is going to be kind of a theological deep dive. And uh, one of the things I want you to know is the first few weeks are going to be a little more theological, and so you're going to have to be kind of put your thinking cap on. And then as we move through that, one of the great things about this topic is it immediately becomes incredibly practical. And so as we understand and wrap our brain around the understanding of who the Spirit is, then we're going to begin to look at what the Spirit does in each of us. And oftentimes, like you see in the scriptures, it starts with our beliefs and then moves to our behavior, moves to how it impacts us. And so we're going to start with doctrine, then we're going to go to to practice after that, like a lot of times the New Testament books do. So when you think about the basic beliefs of Christians, the Holy Spirit, honestly, though, is among one of the most misunderstood. It's one of the most confused and difficult things, in some ways because the Holy Spirit is very mysterious, and it um, can be somewhat difficult to incorporate that into our lives. I was reading this week, uh, which is kind of remarkable because in the 1900s, a lot of church historians called the, the kind of century of the spirit in terms of the Western church because there was this kind of movement that happened and you saw a lot of Pentecostalism and charismatic renewal and all these things that happened. So there's, there was this big movement that took place in terms of church history uh, as far as the Holy Spirit. But here's what's fascinating to me. A study was done recently that revealed that um, although the majority of people in America still refer to themselves and self, uh, self-label as Christians, um, that 62% of those who identify as Christians say the Holy Spirit is not a real living, living being, which is, which is amazing, biblically, when you think about what scriptures have to say. Now, according to this research, almost to me what's even more disturbing is among those who seem to hold a more biblical worldview and seem to approach life from that worldview, still there was more than 40% that said the Holy Spirit's not a real living being. So what, what happens with this disconnect? Why do we see this kind of confusion about who the Holy Spirit is? Now, I think part of this because on the other side, there, there's people that talk a whole lot about the Holy Spirit, but many times what they say and the way they practice it is very confusing. And so you hear this spiritual sounding language and activity and experience stuff, but it, you can't connect the dots between what you see there and what you see in the scriptures. And so there's some confusion that takes place. Oftentimes people in those circles can seem to treat the spirit kind of like their own personal therapeutic magic genie running around ready to do their bidding as soon as they believe it enough or feel it deeply enough. And that can be confusing for us as well. So as we think about the Holy Spirit, um, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised that it seems confusing to us. When you look in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was sent during Pentecost, there was a lot of confusion at that time too, and a lot of questions, and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, discussion, discussion about what was really happening. And so here's what I want us to, to think about today. I want us to think about the person of the Holy Spirit. 
And when you think about the, the, God, the God that we worship as Christians, the, the, the God who we call a trinity, who's three persons and one God, um, oftentimes the Holy Spirit, I think, is the most difficult one for us to understand. It's easier for us to relate to God as Father or God as Son because we, we have experiences with fathers and sons. We can look in a world and we see relationships between fathers and sons. We understand something of that, and we can kind of, through an analogy, say, well, I see how maybe that would work itself out. But when we talk about God as Spirit, well, that's kind of outside our normal relational experience, isn't it? And so it's a little bit more difficult to wrap our brains around kind of what that, or make associations with with the Holy Spirit in that sense. And then to confuse it even more, you know, if you look at the old translations, the Holy Spirit was always called what? The Holy Ghost, right? And so immediately you think like, so God is Casper, you know, or you go into like Ghostbusters world and you're like, I'm ready to like, I feel like I need to defend myself against this, this terrifying being and you're not sure what that is. And then you say things that make it even more difficult, like the Holy Ghost lives inside of you and you're like, oh, I don't know. You know, like, I don't know what that means exactly, but I'm not sure I'm okay with it. Um, and yet biblically what we see is that, um, that this is a good thing. And Jesus said, it's good for you that I send the Spirit as your helper, as your advocate, as one who's on your side to be present with you whenever I go to be with my Father in heaven. So over the last couple of years as a pastor, or decades as a pastor, one of the things that has just been real for me is almost no one I know has ever been taught what the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit. We get bits and pieces here, but but very few have sat down and systematically just said, well, let's look at what the scriptures have to say. And so that's what I want us to do over the next few weeks. I want us to deepen our theological and spiritual, under, spiritual understanding of the Holy Spirit, who the Spirit is, what the Spirit does, how it is that we relate to him, and what difference it makes in our lives. So today we're going to focus just on one aspect of that. And we're really, man, we're just getting to introduce this topic. Um, and so uh, we'll have to break this sermon actually into two different weeks. And so we're going to look at the person of the Spirit and what the scriptures present as the Holy Spirit being a distinct person from the Father and, and from the Son. And so as we dive into this, um, then once you understand the Spirit is a person, then we'll begin to ask, well, what kind of person is this? And we could talk about the fact that the Spirit's also divine and the Spirit uh, actually is, um, is God as well. Now, any time you talk about the Holy Spirit, you have to begin with the Trinity. And Christians believe that, that we believe that we worship a triune God who's one God in three persons. And so that's the foundational doctrine, the way we understand that. Uh, if you go, well, I don't understand that completely, I can't wrap my brain around that, welcome to the club. Uh, the, the Trinity is a mystery that none of us will ever exhaust. None of us can, as finite beings, can wrap our brains around the infinite triune God. It's not possible and you never will get there, but that doesn't mean it's completely incomprehensible. There are things that we can know to be true. We can understand something of the truth and the goodness of the Trinity. So three statements when you think about the Trinity. Uh, Wayne Grudem says th that three statements summarize biblical teaching. And I love the simplicity of this and how, how helpful it is. That God is three persons. Each person is fully God. And there is one God. Those are the three statements that you have to hold all, each of those to be true. And to deny any one of those is to minimize or distort what the Bible says about who God is. And so you have to hold all three of those. And you may look at those and go, man, there's some tension with that. How can God be three persons and one God? Yes. Uh, it's called a miracle. It's called a mystery. It's what we believe, something that's bigger than our finite minds can put into a box and, and, and take hold of in, in a simplistic sort of a form. 
So here's what, what those three statements mean, though. If you ignore or reject any one of the three statements, you distort your view of God from what the Bible says and from what Christians believe. Now, in church history, if you go back and look at the early centuries of the church, what happened was uh, someone would come along and they would say something and they'd step out in a direction and people begin to listen to what they say and they go, wait a minute, I don't, think that, I don't think that works. And so then they would begin to back it up and they would set up a boundary and say, no, that can't be how we define God because that leads us in a bad, it leads us in a bad, bad place. So think of it like this. Someone said, God is really one person in different forms. He's not three persons, he's one person. He just takes on different forms at different times, someone said. And then the church stopped and went, no, hold on a minute. That can't be right because if that were true, then how could the Father send his only begotten Son to die for our sins? And so they said, no, God is not, uh, is not one person in many forms. God's three persons, but still one God. And so they began to draw lines. So when you look at church history, that's kind of the way things unfolded. When you go to the New Testament, much of that was assumed that there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then as it began to be unpacked, we had to put definitions around this thing, these things to keep people from, uh, from stepping out of bounds. Uh, think about it like a, when you're going down the road and you've got, um, you've got barriers on each side of the road to, keep you, to keep you, make sure you stay on the road. Oftentimes, that's the way the doctrinal statements of the church went. They went, no, if you go off too far this way, you're going to fall in a ditch that direction. If you go off in this direction, you're going to fall in a ditch the other way. And so that's how we came to the formation of these three statements and things, other statements like them, the creeds and um, the definitive statements of the faith that we have in the church. So we're going to start by establishing the Holy Spirit is a person. And if you really don't understand the person of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have a diminished doctrine of God, but you're also going to have a truncated experience of your spiritual life. And so we want to, we want to start there. So what do we mean by God is three persons? Um, you guys with me? Any of you mind blown yet? All right, we're gonna, we'll make sure we blow it completely by the end. Um, but the fact that God is three persons means that the Father is not the Son, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. Um, and so there's a distinctiveness. There's a difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're each three different persons. It also means that the, Spirit, that the Son is not the Spirit. So there's a distinction or distinctiveness to each of them. So what do we mean by person? Well, God's surely not a person like you or me, right? God's, God's clearly uh, bigger than we are. And so we're not saying he's just another finite being like you or me, but we're saying that he is someone who thinks, someone who has a will, someone who acts, someone who relates to other people. And so he's personal in the sense that he has his own identity and as a unique being, he can relate to other people and has his own ability to think and reason and, and have his own will that he acts upon. So this means that God the Spirit is not an impersonal force. He's not a feeling or a vibe, um, right? I mean, because sometimes you talk about the Spirit and you're like, man, man, I'm getting the vibe. And so you get these circles and people talk about these things. But God is a person. He's not just a feeling or a vibe. He's not a universal symbiotic connector of all things. Uh, you Star Wars people means the Spirit's not midichlorians, you know, uniting all things together in one life force, um, God is not merely a general sense of God or love in the universe. See, in those sense, those sense that's kind of the way we talk about God in the broader spectrum of, of our world that's not Christian. In many ways, that means you talk about the Spirit as an it and not as, a, not as an individual person. Um, and so that's, we want to we guard against that. Um, the Spirit is not some kind of energy or power or spiritual electricity. Um, the person... Uh, the Spirit is different than those things. He, he thinks, he feels, he acts, he relates to other people. 
Oftentimes in, in, our, in our culture, we talk about spiritual to describe a certain kind of feeling. Uh, any of you know about you know, spiritual, uh, you watch football later in the day, you're going to probably hear some announcer somewhere use the phrase, man, he's the spiritual leader of this team, right? And what do they mean? Well, he's the guy that gets everyone worked up and excited on game day. He's the guy that when, when they need a big play, rallies the troops and emotionally makes sure everyone's engaged. Uh, we talk about spiritual music. What's spiritual music? Well, it's music that, man, it makes me feel something. You know, when you do it, that's why they say, well, you, you know, we're going to church, right? Because in our culture, we, we think of this thing as whenever I feel something strongly, we call it spiritual. And so spiritual comes to be this kind of emotional, this, this emotional experience. Sometimes in a, in a performance, in a movie, we go, man, that was a, there was a real spiritual moment at the end of that concert, right? What it means is I felt something. And so spiritual in our world has oftentimes become this sense of just emotionally feeling some kind of experience. And yet, as one of my professors in seminary used to say, uh, I always remember he'd say this, he'd go, you know, that may be something, but it's not Christian. And um, he would just say that over and over. You get to anything, you go, I don't know what that is. That may be something, but it's not Christian. And that really is the truth for us. When we talk, use this word spiritual and this word spiritual in our broader world, uh, there's a lot of things out there and they may be something but they're not what we believe. They're not what the Christian Bible teaches. The Christian Bible teaches that, that the spirit is not some impersonal feeling or force, but the spiritual is actually a person that we can relate to. And so biblically, um, to say something is spiritual means that somehow it's connected to the spirit of God. That to be spiritual, it has to have the presence of the spirit in it. And so there's a connection to uh, the person of, of the Holy Spirit. Now, we see this biblically in lots of places. Look with me at Luke uh, chapter 3. And I'm going to run through a bunch of verses. You don't have to look there. You can just look on the screen. I'm going to throw them, uh, throw them on the screen here as well. And we're going to run through several of these. And I just want you to, here's what I want to do today. I don't want you to wrap your brain around and understand all this. I want you to just take one idea. The Holy Spirit is a person that I can relate to as a person as, and have a relationship with. I want you to understand that today. So Luke 3.22, we see the Spirit at Jesus' baptism. It says, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Here you see all three members of the Trinity acting at once, right? So Jesus is being baptized. The Heavenly Father is speaking and says, you are my beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and rests upon Jesus. Father, Son, Spirit, together at once. They're distinct beings, right? You see this also in Matthew 28, when you come around to what we oftentimes in churches call the Great Commission. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, they're together, but uh, each mentioned individually. They're distinct. They're separate persons of the Godhead. Now, here's what's interesting about this statement. And yeah, oftentimes, if you've seen us do baptisms, we almost always say this exact thing, right? We're going to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let me point out this. Is, the na is name singular or plural? Singular. There's one name. There's one God. But that God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see it here in this verse. They're distinctive. They're separate. Now, friends, if you've been baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, you should value the Holy Spirit. 
You should see him and want to relate to the Spirit as you do to your Father, to the Heavenly Father, and as you do relate to Jesus. You should also want to relate to the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, you see this in many of the greetings in the New Testament. One example here in 2 Corinthians says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's that? It's the Son. In the love of God the Father, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So as Paul is greeting the church and writing this letter, he, he says the grace of the Lord Jesus, the grace of the Son, uh, the love of the Father, and the fellowship, the relationship of the Holy Spirit be with each of you. And so he highlights those three things. And in that sense, the New Testament seems to assume the Spirit will be this person that we would relate to all along. But again, the Spirit is included over and over as an equal with the Son and with the Father. And so all three are important. So today, I want you to see the distinctiveness of that person. And again, this isn't going to be exhaustive. I'm just going to run through some stuff to give you a sense of the way the person of the Spirit oftentimes interacts with us or interacts in our world. So the Bible re repeatedly speaks about the Spirit in a way that could only be attributed to a distinct person. John 15, this is Jesus. And Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to leave and he's going to be killed. He's going to, he's going to die on a cross and he's going to eventually ascend and sit down at the right hand of the Father. So he says, when I leave, his disciples go, what are we going to do if you leave? And he says, you, you, peace be with you. I will send you another. I will send you a helper. I'll send the Spirit to be with you. So he says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So a spirit can't be connect, I mean, can be related to God, but he's sent out from God. So he has to be distinctive because you can't go away from God the Father if you're, if you're just a form of God the Father, right? So God the Father says, no, the, the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And in that, he tells, he bears witness about Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 says, God has revealed these things to us through the Spirit. So the Spirit's this unique being that God speaks through and communicates through and reveals things to us. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For a person's thought, um, a per, for who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. He's a distinct, unique person within the Godhead. Um, now, so you think about God being distinct. What actions does the Spirit does the Spirit perform? Uh, we see examples of different actions because no one's ever seen the Holy Spirit, but the presence of the Holy Spirit is, uh, is known by what he does. And so oftentimes you see his actions, like John 16, 13, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are, are to come. The Holy Spirit's going to guide us. You see other places the Spirit leads us, the Spirit teaches us, the Spirit instructs us, the Spirit convicts us of sin. The Spirit is active and works in all these different ways. 1 Corinthians 2 says, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So Paul says, we were taught by the Holy Spirit. He was our teacher. Romans 8, one of our favorite verses about the Holy Spirit that we quote oftentimes in church. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our, weak, in our weakness. For we do not know what, how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts and knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. The Spirit prays for you, intercedes for you, groans for you. He's personal. You can relate to that, right? Um, last category, um, what, do, um, what are the following, or, or we see that the Spirit's relationship's personal. Um, we see in some places he can be blasphemed or spoken against. Uh, uh, Acts 5 says, 
um, that, that you can lie to the Holy Spirit. Acts 7 says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So there's a relational context there, and he can be resisted. Um, you get to Ephesians 4, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So we can live in such a way that, that causes the Holy Spirit to grieve because of his relationship with us. Um, Hebrews 10 says, um, <clears throat> speaks about the Spirit being outraged. 2 Corinthians uh, 1 talks about um, how it says, and God establishes us with you in Christ. He's anointed us, has also put a seal on us, given his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Holy Spirit is a seal that guarantees your salvation because he's taken up residence in you. Verse Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? So friends, do you see how the Spirit's this unique thing? Not just thing, this unique person that we can relate to, that we can have a relationship with. Here's, here's what I hope happens for you in this series. I hope that you grow in your desire to relate to the Holy Spirit as the third member of the Trinity, or the God that we worship, the God that, that, that saves us. And we're going to unpack that a lot more in weeks to come. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your only begotten Son to save us by your grace and by your mercy through the sacrifice of his life, through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, that he might pay the penalty for our sins, that we might have new life and forever life in him. And I thank you for the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, and that we have believed your grace, we've trusted it, we've taken it by faith, and because of that, that you've begun a new work in us. And in that new work, Father, that your spirit has birthed new life in us, that your spirit has convicted us of, of our need for you, and your spirit intercedes for us and helps us and gifts, um, gives us gifts and continues to, um, to bear fruit in our lives. Father, would you teach us more um, by your spirit how it is that we, can, that we can walk with him and have fellowship with the spirit in the days ahead. Father, we pray this in Christ's name, by your Holy Spirit. Amen.